And then mm-hmm. the cherry on top, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, not a random article on the Wall Street Journal, on the back pages, the editorial board featured a, a post that was titled The Post-Pandemic Teaching Loss. And they, in the very first paragraph, wrote pandemic learning loss, another fun mm-hmm. phrase that we've talked about, is being exacerbated by teaching loss. And it seems to me, my fear is that teaching loss is going to be the new phrase that's going to be tossed around and it's all going to come back to this report, which again, isn't really a report. everybody welcome back to the broken copier conversation about teaching the goal of the show is to connect with a passionate diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom marcus spent a little bit how you doing my friend uh, at least for me uh, summer has been very good especially july I-, I feel like i've kind of found my footing of what summer should be we we don't go back till september so yeah. still breathing deeply and really not feeling the urgency of the upcoming school year yet. Uh, with the, the slight interruption of good that was this recent report on the state of teaching that the Wall Street Journal has apparently used to coin the term teaching loss, making the case, mm-hmm. apparently, Jim, that it's it's you and I's fault. Uh, yeah, we're, I'm sorry, Wall, Wall Street Journal, I apologize. Yeah, it is teachers, <laughs> surprise, surprise, it is teachers to blame for where we are now in the state of mm-hmm. education. So I am very grateful to be able to get some things off my chest today uh, in today's episode. But before all that, we have time to rant and vent and excoriate. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. I um, I would say, you know, I survived the AP score release date. Um, I was somewhat frustrated with like this technical difficulty that didn't allow me to get the instructional reports. So that, uh, you know, there was that, I don't know. It was tough. I, I, it wasn't like my AP Lang scores weren't like that much lower than I thought they would be, but they definitely were lower. AP seminar went well. I was really happy with them. I don't know. It's, that's kind of a, an anxiety ridden time for me, but like on the whole, I feel like I've been, you know, doing well with traveling a lot. That July, like, feels like July evaporated for me really quickly. But um, we had this really nice vacation out in Western Mass and played golf with my dad and grandfather and uncle. We got around in. And I don't know. It's been uh, so far, I would say I'm in good spirits this summer. And my sister's coming to visit today, actually. So that'll be really fun. Exciting times. Family is good time. Uh, we're both English teachers. Have you been reading oh, yeah. anything? Yeah, I just finished. Uh, I know I'm going to late. I'm a little late to the party here, but uh, I just finished Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. I imagine you've probably read that. Um, amazing, 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 amazing. Um, and then an old friend of mine, uh, his mom. So this, this friend of mine, Darren, that I went to elementary school with, I was really close with. He was, you know, he and I were close for a long time. His mom randomly, she was a she was a engineering professor at the Air Force Academy. And it was really cool to keep in touch with her. And uh, I stopped over on this big road trip to my mom's to Montana. Anyway, long story short, this old family friend of mine mailed me this book called The Book of Lost Friends. Uh, she said that she read this novel and um, it reminded me a lot of it reminded her a lot of me and my old friend. Anyway, I'm I'm excited to get into that, but. And then, of course, I've been reading all these wonderful think pieces that come out from, you know, Ed Week and all that. How about you? Are you reading any fiction right now? Yeah, I, I really try to do at least one a week over the summer uh, while chasing around the little guys. But uh, that's impressive, I read, man. That's, I finally that's got good. to Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, uh, yeah. I was, yeah. I struggled for a bit with it. I, I don't really love McCarthy in yeah. my readings of him. But the last hundred pages and the ending, like that's mm-hmm. that's an ending to a book without going into any spoilers. That really 
messes with you in a profound way. So I think that yeah. would be my pitch for that book. Uh, of course, he passed very recently. I also just read, I have this book of essays by Brian Doyle, One Long River of Song. And he's mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorite writers. He came to our creative writing workshop in college. Cool. He's a Pacific Northwest writer, uh, passed several years back, and they collected his essays after his passing. And it's just the best type of writing, inventive writing with like a warmth and generosity. So uh, yeah, just, and I also, I don't know if you're like, I think we talked about this last summer. Once time of summer, I try to pick like a challenge book that I'm going to have mm-hmm. to really work to get through. I guess mm-hmm. Blood Meridian could have counted for that, but I'm, I think I'm going to tackle War and Peace for the first time. I've got it. I got that's, it ready to go. That's ambitious. I know. I, I feel like I did Ulysses last summer, and that was way harder than what War and Peace will be, to my understanding. Like, Ulysses took immense work, quite honestly, yeah. Uh, yeah. to get through. I feel like I can do it, but it's a, like that's a thick book. Uh, and I, I'm, So that, that's where I'm at in my reading. I feel like books like Ulysses were not meant for people with children and full-time jobs. They were meant for people who, you know, could spend seven hours a day reading in the park, which is, you know, uh, something, to, something to think about <laughs> one day. Oh, well, yeah. uh, you ready to, you ready to talk about this report and the, yeah, man. I, I just want to stay up front. If I had worked a little harder and believed a little bit more, and was more refined in my instructional approaches, you know, maybe we wouldn't be in such a sad place. So it's, I'll, I'll take responsibility and uh, I apologize right up front. I'll say that. I will apologize too. <laughs> like this, I, I, I guess I just wasn't aware that all I had to do was use these accelerated teaching techniques. Oh man. Don't, where you, yeah. both you didn't know that you didn't know at that the same time as hitting rigorous grade level content. Yeah. Like that's all you have to do. It's like, you know, like turning on a light switch and then the problem is solved. And I get, if you were an administrator and you walk the buildings as these Mm -hmm. apparently did and saw teachers were not using this magical accelerated teaching technique. Yeah. The problem just wasn't solved in a year. It's quite a thing, right? It's alarming. It's alarming. I can't, I can't believe it. And to think, you know, the most offensive part of this is Marcus Mm -hmm. to think that we had this in our tool belt all along the whole time and we're just ignoring it how how could we how could we a hammer a screwdriver yeah. and accelerated teaching techniques this is i mean yeah. it just you know kind of like sometimes like the the old tool, tool belts you know some summer jobs back in the day you get like yeah. that like that screwdriver and nail gets at the very bottom and you can you, you reach down you, you forget it's there that, that might, we must just have forgot. We I, well, had to be on some PowerPoint slide during some training in our yeah. early years. As everyone knows, when you try to build the treehouse, you pound the nails in with the back end of the screwdriver. And oh. yeah, I don't know. There's, it's like there's the hammer there and we just were never using it. Yeah. Or maybe you, <laughs> maybe the trick is it's like you have to, the rest. No, I actually think this is the best metaphor or analogy yeah. of yeah. all it requires is with one hand, you have to hammer in nails. And with another hand, you have to use a screwdriver uh-huh. simultaneously with precision, adjusting yeah. to circumstances. That's all it is. You That's forgot about the level. You. you forgot about the level. You got to make sure, make sure the level's on top of the board so that everything's oh, perfectly flush you, you, you with the tree. With the nose. Right. Or, with or the tree, which is not level. Right. Right. Okay. Well, now that we've done this, I feel like we've concocted a, a, a fully elaborate metaphor. Uh, why don't you summarize a little bit what's coming up? I mean, I'm sure people are probably kind of in the know here about what we're joking about. But yeah, what did you read first that started you off here? Yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that, though. You can assume the tone that's ahead of you if you're listening. Yeah. So all of this kicks off with uh, actually an education week post that I saw online. It hadn't gotten a lot of traction yet. And uh, and the title of the Education Week article covering this report was, quote, teacher skills took a hit during the pandemic too, report says. And I click on it and I'm like a, a little skeptical, but I'm like, I'm going to read the coverage and mm-hmm. then I'm going to read the report. And it's from the Center for Reinventing Public Education, uh, that the report's called Teaching Recovery? Question mark 
three years in, school system leaders report that the pandemic weakened instruction. And I actually go spend some time looking at the actual report, not the coverage of it. And the report itself basically consists of going to five school districts and interviewing high-level administrators. They're pretty clear that these aren't just your building-level principals who had apparently done some classroom walkthroughs, and 30 of them were granted anonymous quotes, Mm -hmm. and that's the report. Like Mm -hmm. There is no supporting data or any quantitative measures. It, It just is anonymous quotes. They don't even list all the anonymous quotes. They just handpick the ones that fit their narrative, and then they offer analysis and, of course, solutions going mm-hmm. back to the accelerated learning techniques that we all should be using. That's what the report finds, including, and I want to just read, quote, one of their key finding is this. I'm going to read it, and it pains me to read. This is from the yeah, good. report. Good teaching also suffered after three years of disruptions. Leaders reported that teachers were falling back on outdated and ineffective instructional practices or using curricula that lacked grade level content and rigor. Hmm. Quote. So that was really a report that offered many other findings, and we'll talk about this. And that was the part that they chose, including the people who came up with the report themselves, to feature. That was then chosen by Education Week to feature in their coverage and title. And then mm-hmm. the cherry on top, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, not a random article in the Wall Street Journal, on the back pages, the editorial board featured a, a post that was titled The Post-Pandemic Teaching Loss. And they, in the very first paragraph, wrote, pandemic learning loss, another fun mm-hmm. phrase that we've talked about, is being exacerbated by teaching loss. And it seems to me my fear is that teaching loss is going to be the new phrase that's going to be tossed around and it's all going to come back to this report, which again, isn't really a report. It's just a bunch of interviews, not even a bunch, a handful of interviews from a bunch of anonymous folks. That's where we're at. It's got incredible coverage. Jim, go from there. I mean, there's a lot. I think I'm going to, I want to take two points. I'm going to take the first point that I want to make, cause I read the report as well. And it does come back to this accelerated learning acceleration strategy. Like one of the big features in the report, like you said earlier, it's blaming teachers for falling on quote unquote outdated and like ineffective classroom instruction and instead and not doing the learning acceleration or or like other proven research rights but they keep coming back to learning ex- acceleration as a strategy and as like this thing to implement and i just want to read how they define that in the first american school district panel report school system leaders reported their commitment to a quote learning acceleration strategy and here it is instructing all students at grade level and intervening immediately with individualized supports to help those students who were falling behind. And I was just like really shocked and taken by just that whole sentence. Because if any, like, I feel like anyone who has spent any time in a classroom knows like what a joke that is, how immeasurable it is, what like I could say, okay, I'm going to teach this lesson and then we're going to do small breakout groups and then we're going to do one-on-one tutoring. And it's just, I I mean, I come back all the time to the issue of time. Like how, how, what, what does an ideal calendar look like for a teacher in the day and how many students should they be serving? Because if we invest enough money to triple the amount of teachers in classrooms, I really believe that would make a huge difference, but that's neither here nor there. The other part, like this accelerated learning strategy is not a thing. It's really not a thing. Um, Not a thing that can be implemented day to day by one teacher unless they have like just almost, you know, a, a wild amount of time to 
in the, that's built into their day to not only plan the lessons and refine the curriculum, but to evaluate the data, respond to the data, decide on what individual interventions are necessary. And all of it, like every teacher is trying to do that, re, like trying really hard to do that all the time, because that's what that's what teaching is like. That is what teaching is. We're all trying to do that. And we're not just trying to like ignore this, but which leads me to my second point, both this report and like the, the subsequent news coverage, you know, that's in wall street journal and ed week and probably will be picked up by others. It's like, it treats the administrators as like the wise observers of this catastrophe and, and bears no responsibility for ineffective school leadership no effective, no responsibility for ineffective professional development. There's no discussion of how are you going to train the teachers? There's sentences of like, oh, well, the teachers need to be trained. What does that training look like? I mean, constantly in a lot of these reports, there's, you want to talk about low expectations. Why don't you talk about low, the, the low expectations that like, administrators and people who critique teachers have for training teachers. I mean, it's terrible. I, I mean, and I, I say that as someone who honestly really appreciates the learning, like the teaching learning environment at my school, because I feel like it is genuinely authentic and collaborative and stuff. But I, that's the reason I'm there. Like I'm not going to go to another school because I know how bad PD is at most other places. I don't know. It's just that to me, that's the part that was like pretty unspoken throughout all, all these arguments and was really salient was like, is this a joke? Like, I don't know. It lays, lays all the blame at teacher's feet and take no responsibility for any of the root causes for why this stuff may, might not be happening to, to whatever expectations, you know, are available. Yeah. One quote that builds off of that from the report I, I hate even using the word report. I feel like it makes a mockery of what a report is. If this was a news article where they went and named, hey, we went and interviewed these districts. Here's what they said from the administrator's standpoint. I'm, a, I'm more okay with it. But to, to put this under the guise of a report and pretend that it's more than it is, is I, th I think it's false reporting in a way uh, in terms of the way it's being covered. But yeah. one quote, uh, to go back to what you were saying, is one of these leaders said called what is going on an erosion of professional expectations so our as teachers our professional expectations have been eroding and because and here's the reasoning for this that teacher appetite for engaging in professional learning outside of the school day has oh, not yeah. returned and they're just not attending so the was it ever there i never really had much of an appetite for that personally I like mean, broccoli. we're the weird ones. We're the ones yeah. who are reading all these reports over our summer break and, and engaging in personal development and learnings on our own. Like we're yeah, the, we ones start, we, yeah, them. we have, a, we have a podcast with hundreds of, of downloads every episode. Like, yeah, our appetite for professional learning must not just not be there. Yeah. But like to say like they're blaming teachers for not working outside of their contracted hours to get the yeah. development. And, and, and here's, I'll make a little devil's advocate point on the report before we get into the coverage of it is that you actually read through the report and if and it basically spends in my reading a good amount of its time saying here's all the ways we failed to support teachers we're not giving them this time we're struggling with hiring which is a real thing and we've talked about that like where the teacher shortage is a real thing teachers aren't getting the training and collaboration time they need mental illness is a real thing the one thing i, I would argue they leave out is chronic absenteeism from students has been yeah. escalating and has been an ongoing problem and that makes it's hard to use those magical acceleration tools if students are in the classroom mm -hmm. uh, but in general you could have given this report and said Actually, this is a report on the ways that districts are struggling to support teachers and the miraculous work, quite honestly, that teachers are doing despite all of that. Uh, yeah. You could take the same information and label it and present it in a different way. And that is, in one way, the devil's advocate case for it, but also the criticism of it. The other thing I'd yeah. offer, though, is that what if I take a step back from all of this, one thing that I think is fair to acknowledge 
is that if you get a group of any educators in a room, whether teachers, administrators, you know, support staff, family, students, and ask them, what does good teaching look like? They all have different definitions. This is a really difficult thing to mm-hmm. grasp. And I think a lot of people would say, well, it depends on the students, on the class, on the, the grade level, on the, the context. And, if, and I think what people want is one answer to that question when there's never going to be one answer and one metric to evaluate it. And from Charlotte Danielson and all the money that that's made to this apparently and test scores, et cetera, we use a lot of bad measures for what quality teaching looks like. And it's just really hard to define. And I don't think it's fair to say, well, it's hard to define. So you can't tell me what to do as a teacher. I don't agree with that. I, I, I do believe in collective efficacy, which this report points out. I think getting everyone on the same page and a building and saying, these are our priorities, that makes sense. Following curricular standards, of course, is part of our professional obligation. So I don't think teachers should be completely off the hook. I just think that this report is complete nonsense in how they make their case. And then the coverage of it gets to a really pernicious level that we're going to talk about too. But before yeah. that, jump in. Well, I, I mean, a couple of things on the report, like I, so it's interesting because I brief, I was chatting about this with Aaron earlier this morning. My, my wife is a researcher, right? And she works for a firm that, that, you know, doesn't do exactly this, but she does a lot of education research and, you know, like this, the report, I didn't, I didn't actually find the report itself like that offensive because I mean, it is treated as a report. The researchers are clear at the very front. They say, let me see if I can find it. Um, Yeah. While the resulting findings are not generalizable to all U.S. school systems, they do provide a detailed on-the-ground illustrations of how school system leaders have approached and implemented pandemic recovery plans. So I think it's important. Like, sure, this, this report can provide insight and like i'm sure that bad instruction is happening like i'm sure that some people are checking out i'm sure that like the 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 administrators and the leaders like are being honest and truthful and like it can be helpful these reports can be helpful to provide like an illustrative accounting of what's happening in some schools but the problem becomes the problem becomes okay are we generalizing this because it's it is blaming it's very blaming of teachers and it also ignores it 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 doesn't seem to me my my criticism of the report were like it just doesn't seem to me that like the right questions are being asked like why like if you're saying that these instructional strategies aren't being implemented is there any reason why is there any reason at all for why? Because if not, it, the assumption is, oh, like the way that I read it, you're left with, oh, well, these incompetent teachers are just ignoring and not doing what they're told. Well, maybe you should ask them, like, why are they making these decisions? Like if, you know, like I I personally am a big fan, a big fan of sentence diagramming. I don't do it a lot because it's it's not really seen as like a common practice and like i've been told that it's outdated and i've rec- i've read mixed reviews on the evidence but like it just seems like a really elegant clear way and when i've done it with students in small groups it clicks with them like i don't know i just think part of the point that i'm trying to make here is we should approach approach these criticisms and ask questions about these observations that you're making rather than you know rather than essentially implying which i think the report does that like lazy teachers just aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing to me that came across multiple times yeah i'd also just offer though like from i'm okay with a report based on interviews if it's presented fairly but you need to be transparent with the data what i'm not okay with is oh we're going to do these interviews and we are going to cherry pick quotes in the report 
from those interviews and not provide the rest of them. Like there should be a link to here are the actual transcripts of the interviews. Here are the questions that were asked in the same way as if I collected quantitative data, I would present all the data and then here are my conclusion and my findings. I don't think that's a, this is a fair way because let's be honest, you and I could go get 30 interviews and cherry pick quotes to make whatever case we wanted about anything in education. And I don't think it's honest. I think it's, fine to say this is what we did, but to call it a report for me gives it a credibility it doesn't deserve. I don't think this has credibility to be taken the way it has been taken. I also think it exposes a deficit mindset from these system leaders around teachers. They obviously don't think highly of their teachers. The way it's written, the way it's covered, it it just, the idea of walking into classrooms and assuming the worst and what was going on without providing any more context or inquiring for more context exposes how a lot of people think about teachers right now, which is a real thing that they look Mm -hmm. at teachers through a deficit lens. And that has real harm that leads to teaching loss in terms of actual numbers of teachers and people wanting to go into the profession, which we've talked about. But this for me is such a barometer for the current culture around education where people who are not in education. And to be honest, sometimes people in education have a really negative view of the capacity of teachers overall. And that's, they're walking in with that general assumption until you prove them otherwise. And that mm-hmm. can be pernicious and has real consequences. And it's going to make our work harder, not easier going forward. So that's my overall I, yeah. report stuff. I mean, yeah, it's called the center for reimagining public education. So like right away, I don't get warm, fuzzy feelings about how they feel about teachers, but, um, I don't know much about the organization. I, yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. And I'm not trying to like, one of the other points that I, that I was thinking about, it's like, we, we have a ton of data. We have a ton of data that suggests that students aren't reading. They're just not, they're not reading, not reading for fun, not reading, not reading fiction, not reading for pleasure. We have all this data that suggests it. Teachers know it. It's the battle. It it is like the battle that we're trying to fight, not just in English classrooms, but like for a lot of teachers, regardless of content, where I feel like we're all literacy teachers in a way. And I feel like that's a really core belief that so many teachers have is to build reading skill, stamina, habits, critical thinking skills. Why then? You have if, if you look at that data that says reading is going down and you have all these teachers who like hold reading as a core belief, why does the blame keep falling on the teachers? Because we also have we also have so much data about the mental and psychological, the negative mental and psychological aspects of social media. We know what cell phones do to teenagers' brains when, you know, like it's it's a it's a much more widely encompassed problem and it's just frust i don't know it's just frustrating to be like oh yeah the teachers are ineffective like no the teachers are teaching completely different students than they were even four or five years ago let alone you know like so much has happened for for to students and the way that students think and the way that they make meaning of things since the pandemic that like I feel like I, I feel like I'm still learning how to adjust for that and to make adjustments in the curriculum for that. And, you know, like one of the bets that I made this year for AP Lang, for example, was like doing a lot of reps with different texts and cycling through texts more quickly. And now I think that that was the wrong call. And one of the big adjustments that I'm going to make going into next year is to do fewer texts more deeply. The reason that I didn't do that was because I'm like, okay, I'm working with students who get bored really easily. So in order to keep up the motivation and keep up the engagement and drive interest, then I'm going to be switching up the text and hope. And like part of my thinking was maybe, you know, doing more reps with different texts will keep up engagement and get and drive after the skills that I want. It didn't pan out in terms of my AP skills or my AP test scores. But like, that's also not the only way that I measure success. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't know. It's just, there's just no, there doesn't seem to be a real appetite for inquiry into why, like 
all of the forces and all the things that teachers are dealing with short of, well, this is the training they're supposed to do and they're just not doing it. I don't know. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that shows what a lot of teachers are doing in their own practices and classrooms is trying to adjust to where students are. And then you read this report where teachers are, are really doing incredible work after adjusting to online teaching oh, yeah. without the adequate support and training for that. And that's not mentioned at all. The amount of teachers being willing to do new things without adequate support and time uh, over the last few years. And then what we're doing now is adjusting to where students are at. It's something that I think where adults are struggling with all those things too. It's not just a student problem. Yeah. And, but I think to look at all of that reality and say, oh, you just need to do this direct instruction with these magical acceleration tools and act like it's simple mm -hmm. was offensive to me. And that, yeah. but then I want to, but I think also this gets to the coverage point where I really think that we have failed with the learning loss narrative is mm -hmm. we need to not say, yeah, but to this report, because a lot of people are going to read the wall street journal or hear coverage of this and say, oh yeah. And you know, you know, teachers are really struggling with their instruction after the pandemic too. I read this report. You don't need to say, yeah, but because I want to be really clear, this report has zero proof of that. There's no findings or evidence other than a few classroom walkthroughs and administrators' views based on those. Don't grant the argument. Don't say, yeah, but. Say, no, that's not what that report says. That report doesn't mm -hmm. have actual findings on that. Because the learning loss argument, there are, a lot of people want to make the case, for instance, that school closures led to learning loss. That is not proven statistically if you actually go into the numbers. that There are arguments. It it's, gets into some blurry things. You can make cases for it. You can make cases against it. Some states with extended closures did much better than states that opened up earlier. And then there's some where it's the opposite. My point is don't let the narrative be created without over consistent, sustainable evidence because we have this bad tendency to forfeit the narrative in education to ill-intending stakeholders on the outside, or not even stakeholders, I should say. And for instance, New York Times featured a piece on the Mississippi miracle about mm -hmm. their test scores going up over science of reading. Guess what? Mississippi's test scores went right back down on the next round of tests, and no one said anything retracting that. And my point is... Well, didn't Mississippi just exclude a bunch of students from that data? Isn't that right. what that story was? The, we're not going to dive into that. Okay. Hole. But my point is the narratives from people who are not in education. And I was, I'll just, I'll name it. Nicholas Kristoff, New York Times op-ed, lives in Oregon, wants to, mm -hmm. wants to run for governor. He wrote that piece. He never retracted after all of this. And that happens perpetually in education where people who are not in the classrooms decide they want to read one report and write a whole think piece about education based on it. And then when the data doesn't pan out because it's messy and complicated and changes and doesn't fit the narrative, people ignore it or they consolidate it and they run with their narrative. And I'm so afraid right now that learning loss is going to become teaching loss and that this report, and I'm sure a couple other weird things will come out and then that will become the argument that we hear that leads into this attack on public education attack on public school teachers. And, I mean, even let's just name this one. In the report itself, the report said one of the actual issues with instruction was that there were too many teachers coming into the classroom in the current moment through alternative licensure and expedited emergency licenses. Hmm. In the report, Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal pushes for more alternative licensure and less credentialing of teachers. They don't like those barriers. Mm -hmm. And then they take this report which calls that a problem and uses the report to justify further attacks on teaching. Mm -hmm. That's how pernicious this is. It's not mm -hmm. in good faith. It is not well-researched and well-argued. It is a narrative creation cycle. It's how it works. And sorry, I'm on a rant, but I'm going to go one step further. Education week. Think about what they did. Yeah, they uh, that was the one that really kind of offended this, me. I mean, Education week is much smaller than the Wall Street Journal. But yeah. look at what they did. They took this article, they, their headline, again, teacher skills took a hit during the pandemic too, report says. That's their headline. 
And if you look at the metrics, and at least just going off of Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days, X, Y, Z, I don't know. X. Okay. I got it. Yeah, if you if you DM somebody on Twitter, do you call it a DMX? I don't know. That's the best joke. Let me keep going. I'm I'm still okay. Yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. Is that so? Their metrics on this, the actual post that about this article got seven hundred thousand views and almost three hundred retweets or reXs now. Mm -hmm. Their average post, if you scroll through, is about four thousand to six thousand views. So almost over a hundred times the capacity of views based on this one headline and their average post gets maybe one repost or share. So mm-hmm. my argument here is that the incentive is outraged and it like they are, they're going to be, if you look at their metrics, they benefit from posting something that's going to create outrage. Mm-hmm. That's going to make a lot of people upset. I was someone who shared it because I was upset and I'm sure that that contributes to it. And that's what's so hard in this moment as well is that a lot of people look at metrics that reward the extreme, that reward being dishonest about what the report actually is and it much more nuanced, less um, extreme takes from it. So mm-hmm. I'm just infuriated because this is the environment we're in now. And a lot of people are going to run with this narrative and there's going to be incentive for people to do that running because it's going to be rewarded. And I'm really pessimistic about what that means going forward. Okay. Rant over and I now keep it. I mean, it's real. It's, it's, I've, you and I have seen so many of these stories and know how it works. I, I would, I would say a couple of things. One, I genuinely don't know. Like I feel uh, the the Ed Week one, the Ed Week was the only like outlet thing that I read about the report, and I thought it was pretty reductive. But I gen I genuinely didn't know if the re- if the reporter I forget her name, but like I'm just really I would like to ask her like why did you, like why did you pick this stuff? Because I wonder if she actually felt incentivized. Or was like, I want to, I like intentionally want to blame teachers here. Or if it was just kind of like, this is kind of the narrative. Like, and, and is, I don't know. Like, I'm just sort of curious about the intent for the Wall Street Journal one. Within, within the research report, like one of the things that, I mean, Erin's a researcher. That is what she does. And I, you know, the, one of the class, like the class I'm teaching is AP research. The methodology like within the research community, the report itself isn't necessarily like bad because researchers will evaluate methodology and they take into account things like sample size, was the study randomized, all that kind of, th- all that kind of stuff. So these reports that say some stuff like this and to elicit these types of quotes from the administrators, like are not necessarily bad because they can actually enable people like you and I and other people in the community to respond. Right. But I think none of that really matters to your larger point because in, if, if people are going for social media outrage clicks and trying to like do their politics with this kind of stuff, which I, you know, I think education and classroom instruction, if you look at Florida, like I think it's going to become a big political issue that like, just the overall quality, like, I just feels like this big construction of the net, this national image of teachers who are like incompetent communist social, like radicals. I feel like that's where this type of thing is going to fit. And that's where it seems really dangerous to me, which sounded similar to what you were saying. Yeah. And my, I think I've got two minds of this and this will be kind of my final point. And yeah. that as far as the coverage, I, I think it's dishonest in many ways. The Wall Street Journal's last line is, no wonder parents are seeking help outside of public schools. Mm-hmm. They had an agenda before the, this article was exposed to them. Mm-hmm. They use this article to reinforce that agenda. If you read the piece, they were making a broader point about why you shouldn't trust public schools, and they use this as evidence for that. Oh, yeah, for that, sure. That is plain spoken in that case the education week one could have been many things i i don't necessarily want to get into like the individual reporter other than just to say as an outlet 
their metrics spiked by posting mm-hmm. something that was generated the the headline especially, which isn't all sure. chosen to by the actual writer to spark outrage. And that is frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. The report itself, I'll push back on what again on what you said. Yes, many researchers do this the right way. I don't think this is the right way to say if they had a link in the report saying, here are the number of classrooms that were observed. Here are the actual questions that were asked. Here were mm-hmm. the actual transcripts from those interviews and released all of that data. That's a report to me because then here is our findings of from all of that to go through and then selectively choose the quotes that fit the narrative you are trying to make. That is not a report. That's like a an, an, uh, article, yeah. an article if it was in a coverage. But to call that a report for me lends a credibility that's undeserved and really bothers me. And if that becomes the standard for what reports are in education, we're we're screwed. <laughs> like because then any ill intending actor can go in and make any argument they want and say, "Oh, I have these reports to back it up." And I think. Mm-hmm. I, I want to refute the actual case being made if they were willing to offer more evidence and support of saying, oh, we went through this many classrooms, this X number of classrooms, we're doing these things. Teachers were told to do these things and chose not to because we don't know if these teachers were doing exactly what was asked of them by their building level t- administrators. None of that's mm-hmm. offered. It's obfuscated. And I think that obfuscation takes away the credibility of the report. That's I mean, I think, take. yeah, I, I think, this I think that's problem. totally fair. I think that's totally fair. And that's the reason why, you know, we have a peer review process, which I would imagine, you know, I would hope that policymakers and superintendents are relying more on, you know, meta analyses and peer reviewed data that works because you're right. Like, yeah, I don't have that strong of feelings on the word report, but like, this is an extremely anecdotal and obfuscated summary of, you know, what happened here. And, 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 and it acknowledges none of the, none of the driving for Like in some cases, the administrators were quoted in the report talking about hiring pressures and like, well, now all the, it's, it's really hard to hire teachers because now all of a sudden they have options. Well, then how come you don't ask the question, what do we do to make people want to be teachers? Like, it's very obvious why teachers are leaving. It, it wasn't that it wasn't financially feasible for a lot of people. Anyways, it's a ton of work for not that much money. So, I mean, come on, what are we doing here? Like, and then a, another quick thing that I'll add before we start to wrap up was all including the tutoring, but like, they're talking about how these districts like spent their recovery money and so much of that recovery money was spent on extraneous things like after school tutoring. And then there's a quote in here that I just laughed. I laughed at while I was reading the quote because let me see if I can find it. Oh yeah, here it is. $500,000 for tutoring. Basically. Are you kidding me? That's a lot of money and nothing to show for it in terms of impact on student learning. And I was like, yeah, man, like, of course, of course it didn't pan out because you're not investing in teachers. You're not investing in the classroom instruction. Like there's so many, there's so much focus that's put on outside of school and after school hours, which is important. I'm not debating that, but in a world where you have finite resources, you have to invest in things that matter. And that is the teacher in the front of the room. I don't know. It's, it's very, it's very disheartening for sure. Yeah, this is we're back to cynical negative Marcus on the pod. It's been a while for no. It's yeah. It's nice to see him again. You're you're usually the you know. I guess the real positive. This guy. is what bothers me though. Like I I opened up the report, going in saying you know what I really want to do the work to actually read it start to finish and understand what it says. Mm-hmm. And when I did that, and then compared to how it was covered professionally by Education Week and professionally oh, yeah. by the Wall Street Journal, like it just. I did it like I I could present that in several tweets more accurately than what they sure. did, and that for me like you the did. level of you X them you X them I I know and I X'd I am exhausted. This happens in the summer. I, I I read more outside the educational world and get away from the classroom, and I get negative, and then have to feel better when well, I'm back teaching. So, I mean, what benefit is there to reading 
literature and fiction, if not to make you feel bad about the world, huh? That's why we do it, really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the like end of Blood and Meridian is like about why That's evil right. will reign perniciously throughout the world. And then I read this report, and this is, you know, yeah. this is what Cormac McCarthy was talking about. Uh, read uh, Game of Thrones. You'll feel a lot better. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have like a happy way to end this other than no, to it's say okay. that please do not grant anyone the case that teaching quality has suffered after the pandemic mm -hmm. based on this report. If someone says, oh yeah, I read this report about teaching loss, they have no evidence to back it up. They, mm -hmm. they, it is complete nonsense. Don't grant them that. Push back aggressively. Ask, ask them about the report to read it. <laughs> show it to them. And mm -hmm. like I've read it. Jim's read it. Like It doesn't show that. And I, I think that is my baseline argument aggressively push back on the false narratives that are being made by harmful actors who have already have an agenda against public school teachers and against public schools. Don't mm -hmm. let them have the narrative. We've lost too much already. This can't be another loss. Teaching loss cannot yeah. become a thing. Yeah. I mean, and I would end like not to get too wax poetic here, but I mean, stay in the classroom. Like the whole reason that we're doing this podcast and the whole reason that we're here, I don't know. Like I just believe a lot in the importance of classroom instruction and what education can do. And it, I definitely feel like it's under attack now and will be under attack for a long time, you know, but I don't know. People, teachers should, should feel confident in what they do. They should be proud of what they do. And they also should feel licensed to demand a really productive and strong professional learning environment for themselves. I mean, that to me, that was the biggest failure of this whole thing. It's like to think, to think that teachers are not trying to improve and get better on a regular basis. I've literally, I've met, I, I, I don't know that I've ever met someone who wasn't trying. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's all over the map. And but if to think that, that, yeah. Well, just to think that like teachers aren't motivated to improve and get better, like 95% of any, of any, of all teachers I've met in my career, that's like their number one thing. That's what they all want. I don't know. It's very misguided to me. Agree. And if you're listening to this and you, cause what I would love, do you know what I'd love? It would make me happy, make me a positive Marcus for the summer. I would love to open up the New York Times op-ed or some mm -hmm. major outlet and say, hey, here is how the Wall Street Journal and others have mischaracterized this report on teaching and actually do the <laughs> work of being honest about the dishonesty of others. Like, let's mm -hmm. please someone take this report who has influence, who isn't, it shouldn't be teachers who have to do this. Some, you know, state level superintendent or we have a secretary of education, right? Like unpack yeah. what this, I feel like the process of this is something that deserves exposure and, and we need to defend against it, but it shouldn't be teachers who have to do the defending. Please someone take this and run with it in the right way and show how it exposes the deficit mindset towards teaching and the tendency towards sensationalism and narrativizing and education and just really the malicious attacks on teachers and public education overall. This is a case study. The process of this mm -hmm. and the coverage of it is a case study. We're doing what we can with our broken mm -hmm. copier audience, but like oh, yeah. only so many downloads we're going to get in a given yeah. episode. Please someone who's got the influence and the access go through this with a fine tooth comb and expose what's happened because it deserves exposure because it's going to keep happening until we stop it and talk to teachers like interview teachers too with a mindset that that approaches them with curiosity for why are you making these decisions what are you seeing in the classroom how are you responding to students like the vast majority of teachers are actually making really sophisticated decisions around the amount of information to present the amount of, I don't know, like cognitive load theory and zone of proximal development and like all that kind of stuff rattles around in people's brains and, and 
is not an easy decision. And we have to make all these decisions so fast, you know, like talk to teachers and ask them what's going on. That's, that's the part that bugs me is that teachers don't, don't get that voice to define like what's going on. Certainly not in these types of stories. Not at all. I think that's a great point to end on. Talk to teachers, talk to teachers, talk to teachers. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, man. Well, it was great to see you, Marcus. This was fun. We should, uh, we'll keep at it. And, uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys the last few weeks of their summer. I, this is my last week. I go back on Monday. So, well, you know, it's I, dwindling for me. I will be thinking of you while reading war and peace throughout August, uh, and yeah. your opening weeks, but I'm excited to hear how those opening weeks go. Uh, yeah. It helps me prepare for mine way way off yeah. in the future uh, d- yeah yeah enjoy it chuckles okay take care all right you too the broken copier is an independent listener supported podcast for teachers the show is written hosted and produced by marcus luther and myself jim Mares. thanks to alberto lugo a former student of mine for writing and producing original intro music born and raised in brooklyn Alberto is an independent DJ and music producer based in New York City. You can find his work on Instagram at DJ Synchro and explore his portfolio at djsynchro.weebly.com. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available on Spotify. You can stream all his music on Spotify under the name Uncivilized, on Instagram at banduncivilized, and online at uncivilizedtom.com. You can even sign up for remote guitar lessons with Tom, just like I do. Thanks to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. You can leave us an audio message at podinbox.com slash brokencopier. We might be able to respond and feature it in the next episode. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.